This morning, I was reading uh, through the Psalms in my devotionals, and there was a Psalm, Psalm 92, that just, it struck me, and I just wanted, it has nothing to do with the message. This is just bonus extra credit stuff. It's just extending the sermon just a little bit for all of you. But it, in Psalm 92, verse 12, um, 12 through 15, the psalmist writes this, and I thought of all of you as we were, as I was reading this this morning. Psalm 92, 12 begins this way. The righteousness, or the righteous, excuse me, will flourish like a palm tree. First of all, we live in Ventura, California. Any imagery with palm trees is our kind of imagery, right? The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. And this is what made me think of some of you, not all of you, but some of you. Verse 14, they will still bear fruit in old age. They will still bear fruit in old age. I thought of you, but I also thought of myself. Because my hope and my longing and my desire is that all the days of my life I would bear fruit. That there would not be a day, there would not be a year in my life that suddenly got to an age where God was like done using me, Right? They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no wickedness in him. I love this imagery in the psalm that those who live righteously according to the Lord's instruction and guidance and leadership in their lives, they bear fruit. They are strong from the beginning of their commitment to obeying the decrees of our God to the day that they die, they will bear fruit in their lives. And as we've been journeying through the Sermon on the Mount, there's this key verse early on where Jesus says to, to his disciples, you need to have a righteousness that is greater than that that you see in the Pharisees. And the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is about pe- being a people who are a righteous people, being a people whose lives are characterized by the righteousness of God expressing itself in their lives. And when we adhere and when we listen And when we submit ourselves to the teaching of Jesus that we find in the Sermon on the Mount, we are like the palm tree. We are like those who will bear fruit in our old age. Amen? And as we turn to the Sermon on the Mount this morning, we're going to be in chapter 6, starting in verse 25. I want us to, to just be reminded again that it's not simply our understanding of this sermon. It is the embodiment of the sermon that is the righteousness that we are as the people of God to live before God. Okay, sorry, extra credit part is over. And now I can get to what my notes declare as the introduction. There is this Japanese word, this Japanese concept that's called ikigai, ikigai. Turn to your neighbor and say ikigai, ikigai. Not icky guy, not icky guy. That was, that's gross. That's not a good thing. But if you say it like with a smile, like he smiles, icky guy, icky guy. Say it with a smile to your neighbor, icky guy. There you go, there you go. There's a little bit more enthusiasm. But icky guy, it means essentially that which gets you up in the morning. It's that reason or purpose for your being and living and waking in your day. It's the thing that sparks you when you get out of bed in the morning. It's that thing that makes your life meaningful, this Japanese word, ikigai. And whether you're a student, whether you're a professional, whether you're retired, we're all looking for something to make our lives meaningful. We're all looking for something that gets us out of bed in the morning. And this, in fact, happens even with our two-year-old son, Levi. 
And I get a front row seat to this every single morning. Sometimes he wakes us up, sometimes we are already up and we hear him in the bedroom, but this is our sort of morning routine with Levi is Levi will wake up, and I'm sure he stirs just for a second, but eventually he, he stands up and he holds the front part of his crib and he starts jumping up and down. And you hear the mattress just going, and usually what begins to happen after a short amount of time of him jumping on his mattress is he starts like saying something to himself over and over and over again. Some mornings it's choo-choo, 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 choo-choo. And he wants to get up and he wants to play with his train in the morning. Sometimes it's tota, tota. We introduce our son to the movie Cars. And so Tow Truck is like Mater's, his favorite character in the show. We got on this little stuffed animal, Tow Truck, Mater thing. And he stands on the edge of his bed. He's like, Tow Truck, Tow Truck, Tow Truck. Sometimes in the mornings, it's just a simple standing on the bed, jumping in, up and down going, Mommy, Mommy, Mommy. But every morning, there is something that sparks Levi that he is ready to embark on in his day. This is his ikigai for the day and the question for us to consider perhaps this morning is a very simple one. What gets you out of bed in the morning? What makes your life meaningful? And I think Jesus has something to say about it to us in Matthew chapter 6. And so let's turn our attention to his words. We're going to be reading verses 25 through 34. Jesus teaches us this. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet, I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. One of the unfortunate ways that this text has often been read and interpreted by Christians and the church is to understand that Jesus is teaching a sort of laziness or passivity to one's life. And let me be very clear from the very beginning that Jesus isn't teaching his disciples that they ought to live careless lives, unconcerned with about their physical needs. His instruction isn't to lazily trust the provision of God, Jesus isn't saying don't sow, don't reap, don't store, don't uh, gather, do not labor or spin. He's not saying that you shouldn't do these things. Jesus doesn't encourage laziness and apathy to caring for your own life. In fact, that kind of interpretation seems to push against 
sort of the witness of the whole canon of Scripture. You ought to do these things. But the command that Jesus gives to us in his teaching is do not worry. The Greek word translated as worry, it means fearful. In other readings, you could read it as being associated with sleeplessness. Where ikigai might be that thing that gets you up in the morning, your worry is that thing that keeps you up late at night. And Jesus' command to not worry isn't an instruction not to be concerned or mindful of the things that are necessary for your survival. We do, after all, need food. We do, indeed, need clothes. Unless you're Levi running around in our backyard, then clothes are often optional for him. But I'd suggest to you this morning that our obedience to not worry is in fact fulfilled in our sowing, in our reaping, in our storing, in our laboring, in our spinning. That is, we worry less as we faithfully work in the manner that the scriptures instruct us. You see, work without trust in God's provision leads to worry, and trust in God's provision without work ought to lead us to worry. But it's our faithfulness to the kind of work that Scripture calls us to and our trust in God's provision for us in which we can resist this urge to worry. Or as Martin Luther once said it, God provides food for the birds, but he does not drop it into their beaks. But for us this morning, I think the crux of the text and the the kind of focus where I want us to spend some moments reflecting together is discovered in the question that Jesus asked at the end of verse 25. He asked us this question, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Jesus' question comes to us as a rhetorical one. He isn't asking because he's sincerely curious and he has no idea what the answer to the question is. In fact, the sort of rhetorical question, the use of that, assumes that not only Jesus knows the answer, but he assumes that you know the answer as well. This is why Eugene Peterson translates these words of Jesus not as a question, but as a statement in the message. The message reads these words this way. It says, there is far more to your life than food, than the food you put in your stomach. There is far more to your outer appearance than the clothes you hang on your body. And although we know the answer to Jesus' question, is life more than food? The answer is yes, right? And although we know the answer to the question sort of reveals to us and remains and and requires that we ask perhaps a deeper question, and that question is this for us this morning, what more is there to life? If we all assume that there is more to life, the the sort of necessary question that that requires we ask is, well, what more is there to life? What more is there to life than mere survival? In 1860, there was a man named Milton Bradley, some of you might be familiar with that name, who created a board game that was then known as the checkerboard game or the checkered game of life the checkered game of life. The original game board looked like a checkerboard with sort of various markings and writings within the red and black squares. And we know this game today simply as the game of life. And the the board game was supposed to be a simulation of a person's life within American society. 
the starting point of the game was either to go to college or just start your career, a question that many people, young people are facing today. And the conclusion of the game was retirement. And in between these bookends of college and retirement, you can make all sorts of decisions about how you wanted to live your life. Did you want to get married? That might be a possibility. You might even have kids. Uh, you might find different jobs. There are a lot of payday <laughs> boxes on the game board, which is, I could use a few more of those. I'm just kidding. In the modern version of the game, players, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. In the modern version of the game, players would reach what was known as the day of reckoning, where they had to choose between pursuing millionaire acres or trying to become a millionaire tycoon. And the risk to become a millionaire tycoon was that you could be sent to the poor farm for retirement, and nobody wanted to live in the poor farm. And the vision of the game of life, at least according to the board, was very clear, get rich, or die trying. And though later versions of the game would encourage people to, uh, for, to do good behaviors like recycling or you know, giving to the homeless, the ultimate aim for players was the same. Retire as the wealthiest person in the game and you win. You win the game of life if you're the richest at the end. What ought to be your ikigai? What ought to wake you up in the morning? What more is there to life than survival? Well, according to the game of life, accumulating wealth and satisfying your own wants and needs and doing better than everybody else around you materially was the whole point of this thing that we call life. And although I'm describing just a board game, it is in fact how many people in our world attempt to play out the actual game of life. And the problem with this approach to life is that it makes your life an end in itself rather than a means to an end. I recently heard a pastor say this, being a means to an end is what makes anything meaningful. Being a means to an end is what makes anything meaningful. This principle is why none of us are wearing Google glasses right now. <laughs> Anybody familiar with Google Glasses? Anybody? Nobody? A few? Okay, nobody. Well, several years ago, this is why you don't know what Google Glasses are. Several years ago, ago, Google created what was known as Google Glass. They were a set of glasses that allowed you to take pictures quickly and display in one of the lenses something that would look like the screen on your phone. And one of the reasons people suggest that that Google Glass never made it to like a mass market of production. So they didn't have a clear purpose. They didn't fix any problems that any of us were dealing with. They didn't have a clear function. They lacked meaning. The basic question, why do I need Google Glasses? Nobody could answer. And in fact, if you ask the engineers who created Google Glasses, they all had conflicting ideas about what the glasses were for. So they were cool, and for a brief moment, they provided some sort of social status, but at the end of the day, they lacked meaning. And at $1,500 a pop for a pair of glasses, most consumers weren't willing to spend their hard-earned money on meaningless technology. You see, for anything to have meaning, it must serve some purpose, or it must have some sort of specific function that points beyond itself. And this isn't just true of technology, it's true of me, and it's true of you. 
See, if you want to live a meaningful life, you have to figure out how to live as a means to an end that's not you. Is you have to find out what is that thing about my life that I'm pointing towards, that my life is purposeful, that isn't just about me. You see, Jesus' instruction not to worry about one's food and clothes is a way of redirecting our attention beyond our own needs and beyond our own wants and beyond our own desires. Because a meaningful life is more than those things. It's not just about you. And meaning in life cannot be found in those things that we possess. This is why it's possible to be rich and miserable. And this is also why it's possible to be poor and joyful because there's nothing more, because there's so much more to life than satisfying our own needs and desires and cravings. And for the disciples of Jesus, there's this very specific end to which we are supposed to be living that gives us meaning and purpose. And the end to which our lives are to serve is this thing that we call the kingdom of God. The end to which our lives as followers of Jesus are supposed to serve is what we call the kingdom of God. This is why Jesus famously instructs his disciples in verse 33, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. You see, the counteraction to worry about one's life, the counteraction to just accumulating and making your life about your own body and about your own cravings and desires is to seek first and to make the kingdom of God primary. And if you're not a disciple of Jesus, this is maybe side note here. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, if you're not a Christian, if you're not one who claims to be a follower of Jesus, the gospel message in its fullness is that Jesus and the way of Jesus is the means by which you can have full life. In John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come that they, that the world might have life and life abundantly. We might say that Jesus has come to give and to show us what it means to live a meaningful, purposeful, satisfying life. And at its very essence, this requires us to view our lives as a means to bringing about the kingdom of God. You see, following in the way of Jesus isn't centrally about believing all of the right theological propositions. Following in the way of Jesus is not centrally about having all of the right beliefs and doing all the right religious activity. Following in the way of Jesus is centrally about seeking the kingdom of God and living your life as a means to that end. But what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God, in its simplest way of defining it, is present where the will of God is done. The kingdom of God is present anywhere that the will of God is done. And so we see the kingdom of God when justice is brought about for the poor. When people give to the needy, we see the kingdom of God. We see the kingdom of God when when we forgive those who have wronged us. We see it when people love their enemies. We see the kingdom of God when acts of mercy and charity are performed in our city. 
We see the kingdom of God when peacemakers do their work in the midst of conflict. We see the kingdom of God every time you invite a stranger to your house and extend hospitality to them. We see the kingdom of God. We see the kingdom of God when people withhold revenge and instead pursue reconciliation. And we could go on and on in the list of things. We see the kingdom of God when we see the life of Jesus lived out in the world. Or simply put, we see the kingdom of God when people are able to truly love their neighbors. When people love their neighbors, we see the kingdom of God. When we love our neighbors and our love for our neighbors extends beyond and transcends beyond race and sex and socioeconomic class and nationality and ethnicity and culture and political affiliation and past wrongs, when we see that love extended in the world to our neighbors, we see the kingdom of God. And as followers of Jesus, participating in the kingdom of God is our number one priority. It's the number one priority. Jesus' central message throughout the gospels is this thing that we call the kingdom of God. And as we share in that, our lives become meaningful and have purpose. As we become a vehicle for the kingdom of God in the world, a tool for the kingdom of God to express itself in the world, we discover that, there, that that is the thing that is more to life, the kingdom of God. Where the game of life views the pursuit of self-flourishing and wealth as primary and recycling and caring for the homeless as secondary, the kingdom of God views the love of neighbors as primary and everything else that we do as secondary. And this, Jesus says, is in fact the whole point of this game that we call life. In other words, the kingdom of God ought to be that thing that wakes you up each morning. It ought to be your ikigai. One of the things that I believe is difficult for followers of Jesus is to keep that on the forefront of our minds as we go about our daily lives, that we are to participate in God's kingdom in the world. And what we must become fully aware of is that seeking the kingdom of God isn't something that's added on to our lives. It's not extra. We don't do like work, family, friends, community activities, and then kingdom work on top of that. Is that the kingdom work is the ongoing work that we're engaged with as we live our ordinary lives. And I want to suggest that if we just ask a simple question every day, Monday through Saturday, that it would illuminate the nearness of God's kingdom to our family and to our neighbors and to our work and to our city. And the question is simply this, how can God use me today? How can God use me today? In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, which I would recommend everybody read, Dallas Willard writes this. He says, as Jesus' disciples, I'm not necessarily learning how to do special religious things. My discipleship to Jesus is not a matter of what I do, but of how I do it. And it covers everything, religious or not. All of life, in other words, Dallas Willard says, is an opportunity for us to faithfully walk in the kingdom of God, our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our work, in our friendships, and in our community 
These all provide us the possibility to walk within and bring about the kingdom of God. One of the things that sometimes I struggle with personally and that I wish that we as followers of Jesus didn't struggle with so much is to recognize and realize that this world that we, we live in is infused with the presence of God. That God is everywhere. That he is in your workplace, he's in your families, he's in your marriages. And what so often happens is that we live as Christians without reflection and without consciously be making ourselves aware of the presence of God in our midst. And yet, what Jesus instructs and teaches over and over and over is that this world is infused with the glory of God and it's the disciples of Jesus that begin to reveal that to the world. You see, it's so, sometimes it's so easy for us to get caught up into thinking that the kingdom of God is somewhere out there that maybe we will participate and share in one day when we have time for that missions trip or that service project. But the thing that Jesus teaches here is that it's so much closer than that. It's here, today, now. And our not looking to tomorrow is a way to allow us to be present to the today of how we might participate and share in the kingdom of God in the world. How can God use you today to bring about God's kingdom? Did you know that he could do that? Do you live with that awareness that the glory of God could be revealed in your life every single day. How can God use you to bring about peace in your family that is full of conflict? There is no family that I'm aware of at least that couldn't use a little bit more peace. How might you be the instrument that brings that about in your family today? How might God use you as an instrument of reconciliation in your workplace among colleagues? How might God be calling you to acts of mercy and forgiveness to your spouse and to your kids or to your parents? How might God be using you to illuminate a weird kind of love for enemies to your neighbors? That person who parks in front of your car or in front of your house every day just drives you nuts, right? How might God use you to just love on that person? How might God be using you and the network of relationships that you have in this city to bring about justice in Ventura, California in 2019? Some of you are just dialed into networks of people that could bring about justice for the poor and the oppressed. How might doing your work with diligence and integrity be a witness to your employees or employers that there is something good in you and it is the presence of Jesus in your life. You see, we, we have to see, church, how all of our lives is a means of participating in the kingdom of God. And the question that we have to ask ourselves every morning when we get up, how might God use you today? If we as a church make the kingdom of God and the righteousness of Christ our primary pursuit in life, we will become the salt and light of the world. It will look different. 
If you live this way, as if the divine creator God who is redeeming all things through the person of Jesus, if you lived in step with his leadership in your lives in the midst of ordinary things, it's going to look different because the way of Jesus is such a radical way of living and so different from the world. And when you do it, and when we do it as a church, we become the salt and light of the world. We become salt and light in our families. We become salt and light in our church. We become salt and light in our schools. We become salt and light in the office, in the workplaces. We become salt and light in Ventura. And this, this is the purpose of life for those who follow Jesus, to become a means to reveal his glory in the world. It is shocking. It, it makes no, if I was God, I wouldn't do it this way. If I wanted to reveal my glory in the world, no offense all, I wouldn't be using y'all, right? I don't know what I would do. I would definitely wouldn't be used to me. The fact that I'm up here with a microphone is the craziest thing in the whole world, right? But this is the thing. The divine creator God invites you to reveal his glory in the world today. How might you be used by God to that end? I wonder if this is something that's worth waking up for each morning. I wonder if this is something that fulfills our longings to live a meaningful life, to reveal the glory of God. How might God use you today? Let's pray. Father, our longing and our desire is to live life to its fullness. We all want more meaning. We all want more of you. And so we ask God that as we faithfully pursue your kingdom, as we don't view our lives as something for ourselves, but as a vehicle for the kingdom of God in the world, as your kingdom in the world, we ask that you would reveal your glory in our church, that this community of faith would bear witness to the love of God and the glory of God in Ventura, California, that we would experience a little taste of heaven on earth as we walk by your grace and step with you. May you be glorified as we faithfully obey your instruction and leadership in our lives. It's your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Church, may you discover what more there is to life as you see and use your life as an instrument and tool for God's kingdom purposes. Go in his peace this week. Amen.